Corinthians 13. We're going over this chapter, which is called the love chapter. Now in the Bible, a lot of us know of it that way. But here Paul is telling the church now that the greatest gift that anyone can possess is the gift of love. And, and it's the gift specifically that he's talking about here, the gift of agape love. You see, that word agape is a Greek word or terminology, a Greek root word, to recognize or to observe the word love here. There are different types of love. There's a friendly love. There's a friendship type of love. There's a love between uh, maybe uh, a person or a thing that you just love enjoying, but the agape love is different. The agape love is very distinct and the agape love is very unique. In fact, the word agape is where we get our word agony or to agonize. So when we talk about love, we're talking about agonizing something that is strong, something that is sacrificial, something that wants to give. We talked about it last week that this type of love has little to do with emotion. It's not an emotion. Love is a choice. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell him love is a choice. Love is a choice. And it has everything to do with self-denial. I want you to hear this up, please, church. It has everything to do with self-denial for the sake of someone else or another. It does not change. It doesn't uh, change in regard to the, that person that it's loving because that person changed or the object of the, uh, of the thing that you love changes. No, it is without demanding or expecting any type of repayment. It is an act of the will. It is the love of God that demonstrates it to you. It is unconditional love. That's the agape love. You see, we see in John chapter 13 verse 1, that when Jesus was in the Last Supper, before we're going to take communion, that day that He took the Last Supper, with communion, with the disciples, that it said that, that Jesus, having loved His disciples, He loved them till the very end. Do you realize that, what Jesus did? He loved them till the very end, and then He began to serve them. See, it's time for the church to love one another till the very end, to the very end, the agape love, right? So that we can be motivated the way, in the way we serve one another. Love one another till the very end. And I'll tell you, if you're married today, if you're in a relationship, I pray that this really speaks to you. That you would have the same God, the same goals, the same vision, the same love, looking at the same love of God's Word. That that's the love that you want to now highlight, that you want to promote, that you want to pursue the love of Agape. We want to pursue that love of Agape. And maybe you're, you're not, you're single, but well, you can seek the one while you prepare for the two in the agape love. You can pursue this type of love. You can pursue God this way, right? Because we must be spiritually prepared to honor God when we want to serve someone. And the best way to spiritually prepare yourself to serve someone is by love. You want to spiritually prepare yourself to serve one another? Then it's by the agape love. I'll tell you this, a carnal church, a divided church, a loveless church, right? A compromising church can never effectively proclaim a message of love. And maybe sometimes we've been impressed by all the wrong things. Maybe by a building, a location, a, a, a size or a group, an amount of people. But if it doesn't have love in the core of it, is it really about Jesus? 
When it's about Jesus, guess what? It's going to be jam-packed at its core with love, with the agape love. This is the love that we want. The walls of our house, of our workplace, of our own private prayer closet to be filled and to echo from these walls, the agape love. What is the walls of your house? What do they echo? Do they echo something outside of the agape love of Christ? Do they, they resound something different, right? Than the agape love of Christ. Because here in Corinth, the church was looking to be noticed and recognized and remembered and to have a reputation in Corinth, right? By being known by secondary things instead of being known by the primary thing, which is love. If you want to be recognized or remembered or have a reputation or your character, it must be love that people would know that. So we know three points from verses 1 all the way to verse 13 is the importance of love that we went over last week. Now verses 4 through 8, I'm going to give you the outline, it's the character of love. What does the character of love look like, right? We know why love is so important, because it ministers to people. Your gifts don't minister to people, it's the love in your gifts that is ministering to people, right? And if your gifts do not come with love, they're not going to effectively minister to no one. It is the love that ministers to people. So now you have the importance of love because without love, Paul tells us we're nothing. We're just a noisy sound. <laughs> we can become annoying. <laughs> but with love, it ministers to people. Right? Then from verse 4 to 8, it talks about the character of love. What is the character of love? And it gives us a description of what Christ is, what Jesus is to you and to me and for us. The ministry of love, the character of love. And then from verses 9 through verses 13, it's going to talk about the maturity of love. The maturity of love. It's all centered around the love of God. Now let's read here in verse 3. 1 Corinthians 13, 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. It doesn't bring me any profit. It is worthless because it doesn't minister to anyone. Now the character of love says this. Love suffers long. Love is patient. And we learned that last week. That the core and the attributes and the character of love is that it suffers long. You know what that means? That love suffers long? That love is patient. That not only is love patient, right? But even when it's wrong, it becomes patient. It becomes silent. It's willing to endure, right? It doesn't become resentful, right? Sometimes somebody has wronged you and instead of you showing them the patience and the endurance of the agape love, we can quickly become resentful and we choose to respond in anger. But love does not respond in anger. I'm going to tell you that. Love responds in patience. Remember that, please. Love responds in patience. And while it's patient, guess what you're doing while you're patient? While it's patient, because patience requires time, <laughs> while it's patient, love is also kind. What does that mean that love is kind? That where there is love, there also will be kindness. Where there is love, there also will be good manners. That means that love not only responds with patience, but while it's being patient, it is now being kind in the process of being patient. 
When you're being patient with someone, are you demonstrating the kindness while you're being patient with them? Are you spreading an attitude of, of maybe anger or resentment or bitterness because you have been wrong? No, here it tells us that love is patient, it suffers long. But while it's waiting and patiently enduring, it is responding with kindness. You understand how this can change your attitude today? You understand how maybe that person, the husband or the wife or the co-worker... Or the person that maybe God has called you to demonstrate them in agape love today. You can have an attitude shift when it comes to that person. Because you, God has called you to wait patiently. And in the midst of you being patient with that person, you're also demonstrating kindness. This is all about the attitude and the characteristic, the ministry of love. But then it goes on and it says, love does not envy. What does that mean? It, it doesn't, it's not jealous. It's content now in the will of God. It's not envious of different situations or of different circumstances or of different seasons or it doesn't now want to come up and exalt its pride in jealousy or in envy, right? Because love is perfectly content in the will of God. You see, when we start to demonstrate an attitude of jealousy or envy, that is the opposite of the perfect love of God. You see, envy and jealousy is all self-centered and selfish, now motivated. And when we're envious and we're thinking about ourselves and we're not thinking about others. That's why the agape love tells us that love does not envy. Love does not, here, verse 4, parade itself. It is not puffed up. What does love not do? It is not boastful. It doesn't exalt itself. Love doesn't come and try to promote itself and say, look how much I love you. Love doesn't try to show off. What does love do? Love is anonymous. You know when it's genuine love? When nobody has to know where it came from. Where nobody has to know where it came from. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't exalt itself. What did Jesus do? He laid aside his garments. He humbled himself, right? He wasn't proud. He wasn't arrogant. He was not conceited. Love is not demonstrated in, in pride. Love is demonstrated in humility. You cannot demonstrate love effectively in pride. We were talking earlier with those that serve. And talking about how, how God does not anoint pride. God anoints humility. You want God to anoint your life? God does not anoint pride. God anoints humility. And if you want to minister to someone else's life, to someone else's situation, you have to ask the Lord, Lord, I do not want to demonstrate pride because you don't bless pride. You bless humility. And here he's saying love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. What, is it? what does that mean? It means that love doesn't get its head swelled up. Because love is there and focuses now on meeting the needs of others. See, when you're, you're love-centered instead of self-centered, you're there and you're focused to meet the needs of other people. You're focused. I'm love-centered. I'm Jesus-centered. It's all about Christ. I'm focused on meeting the needs of other people. Now, from verses here, verse 4, we learn very quickly that love is patient, that it suffers long. It's willing to suffer long. What does that tell us now? That if we're not willing to suffer long with others, if we are not willing to suffer long, we have to examine the capacity and how and if we love them. 
When you're willing to suffer alone, to be wronged, and time and time again give an opportunity and give an opportunity to love, guess what that takes, what that does? It's demonstrating that you're cultivating a heart of the agape love of Christ. And today we want to learn to walk and to live in agape. To walk and to live in agape in the unconditional, sacrificial, self-giving love of God. There should never be people that know you as Christians, but those are Christians that really don't love that much. <laughs> because then you're not identifying yourself as a believer of Jesus Christ. In fact, what makes you more like Jesus than anything else is the agape love of God. That's what makes you more like Jesus. It is His love. It's not how many years you have going to church. It's not how many gifts you possess. It's not how many times you've read the Bible. It's how impressive you speak in front of people. It's how much you love that it helps you imitate the nature, the ministry, and the character of Christ. So many times I've met so many even Christian leaders now. And those that would go to church that have been in church for many years. But they fail to possess love. What matters most? We will never reach anyone if we fail to possess what matters most is love. You can have all the resources, but if you don't have love, what does it matter? Now it goes on in verse 5. Love does not behave rudely. <laughs> this is where you start to underline, church, please. <laughs> love does not behave rudely. Let's take note of what does this mean as our attitude is changing to the nature of the agape love of Christ. It means that love is almost always courteous. It doesn't behave rudely. It has good manners of the child of God. And you come to church, you are the identified as the people of God, right? With the love of God, the child of God. It is not rude. That's not the love of God. When we come off rude to people, guess what? We're showing an unlovely testimony. Do you have an unlovely testimony? How does your testimony look in front of your family members? Your friends, your co-workers, is it an unlovely testimony where they see you and they think, you know what, that, that person doesn't really love. They're giving me the cold shoulder always. They're putting up these walls and the barriers where they don't want to allow themselves to love us. Or do you have the good manners of the child of God, right? It is very unattractive, I'll tell you, when you call yourself a Christian, but you demonstrate an attitude of being rude. It's very unattractive as a believer. Not only is it very unattractive, but it, it messes up and it hinders your Christian witness because of the lack of love. It, it makes you unapproachable. Where people don't even want to come and approach you. And if they don't want to approach you, they, they don't want to talk to you. Guess what? You will never be able to show them the love of God because it has made you now unapproachable. You see, what's amazing about Jesus is that Jesus, our Lord, always said and did the right thing in the right way at the right time. Think about that. The Lord Jesus always said the right thing and did the right thing. He said it the right way at the right time because He wanted to minister to people in love. He did not minister to people in a rude way. You can't minister to people in a rude way because you will never effectively meet their needs. You think God anoints the rude attitude and heart? No, He doesn't. He's not involved in that. In fact, in verse 5 it says, it doesn't behave really, it does not seek its own. It's not selfish, but it's selfless, it's humble. It's, here it says, it doesn't seek its own, it's not provoked, right? It's not seeking its own because it's not thinking about itself. It's not thinking about its own rights, it's, it's there to serve other people. It's unconcerned 
for their own blessing, for their own gain, for their own growth, right? It doesn't seek its own. How many times have you said, maybe to your husband or to your wife, <laughs> or maybe to someone that you know very closely, that you love them, but it's either my way or the highway. <laughs> That's not love. Oh, I love you. I, I, I love you so much. But it, we're doing it this way no matter what you say. <laughs> you know what? That's seeking your own. Love does not seek its own. You know why love doesn't seek its own? Because it's always considering others. Understand that, please. Because it's always considering other people. That's why it's not seeking its own. And I love that, that here Paul is telling us this and he's communicating the same idea even in Romans chapter 12 when he says, In honor, give preference to one another. You're not seeking your own because you're thinking and giving preference and you're giving the right of way and you're giving now the privilege to someone else. In Philippians 2.4, Paul again says, let each, us, let each one of us not look out only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. A loving person. Why? Because this is what, what it means to be like Jesus. The most basic way of being more like Jesus is to be others-centered. You want to be more like Jesus, be others-centered, focused on Christ. Right? But if you're a self-centered person, we've become that. Guess what happens? We will never effectively be more and take steps closer more to Christ. And it's a shame. Because we're so self-centered. Right? That is the core, the selfishness of who we are as a human nature is our pride, our ego. Thinking about self, thinking about our image. But verse 5, it says here, not only does it suffer long, not only does it not behave rudely, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked. It's not provoked. What does love do? Love doesn't get easily angered. Love doesn't have a bad temper. And today, maybe you came, you have a bad temper. <laughs> And you have to ask the Lord, Lord, I have a bad temper. You know, this is what I struggle with. I get irritated at people very fast. I get very resentful. You see me driving on that freeway and I'll, tell, I'll show them the love of God. They want to see it, right? But what does it say right here? It is not provoked easily. Are you easily provoked today? Do people get under your skin so easily? Because it says here that love is not easily provoked. It's not bad tempered. It's not easily offended. It's not easily irritable, irritable. It's not resentful, right? That's not the love of God. God is not easily provoked. The love of Christ is not easily provoked. So neither should we. Verse 5, it says, It does not now, as, it, as we continue here in verse 5, it thinks no evil. Love doesn't think any evil. Why? Because it's thinking the best of others. In other translations, it would say in verse 5 that it keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't think evil. Have you ever thought about someone and you're harboring a record of wrong? You, you have something in your back pocket ready to pull out when they get you mad because you know of all the times they failed you and you have that ready to, that list. That's, you know what? You remember when you did this and remember when you did that and remember when you did this. Love keeps no record of wrong. That means that today you have to grab your little record that you have with that person that keeps wronging you and say, I don't even remember that record anymore. I'm not keeping records. I'm not thinking evil of my, you know, of, your, uh, of my wife or you, of your husband, of your children, or of your boss, right? Oh, my boss, I keep that record on that boss, right? No, are you showing him the agape love of Christ? That, yeah, love has failed me. 
People have failed me. The world has failed me. But the love of God has never failed me. And that's the love that I choose. I'm making a consciousness and a choice to not keep a record of wrong because I'm pursuing that love. It keeps no record of wrong. The New Living Translation reads this verse, Love is not rude. It does not demand its own way. Are you demanding? Are you controlling? Do you always want your way? Everyone else is wrong. They have to learn your way. You never have to learn theirs. Right? That's not love. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not easily irritable. Out of nowhere, everything just, just makes you blow up. <laughs> it's not easy irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. Please, do not keep any records of being wrong. Maybe today there's somebody that you need to forgive. But the reason why you haven't been able to forgive them is because you're holding on to that record. And as long as you hold on to that record, I'll tell you this, you will never fully be able to let go of that and forgive them fully. Today it's time that we show people love and say, I'm going to let go of that record because I choose the freedom of forgiveness and I don't want to hold that against them. I don't want to be bitter. I don't want to have a grudge. I don't want to be resentful. I want the forgiveness that God has given me to be extended over them and I'm not keeping a record of that wrong. You want God to use your life? You want God to minister to you? Then forgive and th keep no records. Keep no record. God has not kept a record of your wrongs. Do you, remember, do you know that? Why is it that we want to keep records of other people's wrongs if He hasn't kept a record of your wrongs? God doesn't think about you and He thinks about everything time you failed Him. So why is it that we keep the records wrong of other people? Love looks over those things. What does the Bible tell us in 1 Peter 4 a? And above all these things, it says, have fervent love for one another because love covers a multitude of sin. Love will overlook that record of wrong that you've thought about, that that person has failed you many times. But because you choose love, you're choosing to look over that. Love covers a multitude of sin. Well, that person has sinned against me. Love covers a multitude of sin. Ephesians 4.32 it says here, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Here we go, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Just like Christ forgave you, you're called to forgive that person. And you cannot forgive that person if you're keeping a record of wrong. How do you expect to receive the forgiveness of God if you haven't extended it to your brother or sister? Let go of that record. And it says in verse 6, it does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. What does it do? It doesn't rejoice an injustice. It doesn't think that everything's okay when it gets away with sin. That's not the love of God. It's not unfair. It's pure. When, when it rejoices when truth wins. It doesn't approve of sin. It doesn't approve of injustice. It's never glad when others don't win. It rejoices in truth. Sometimes for us, we start to rejoice when those people that we don't like start to not do so well. But that's not love. You know, when that person that maybe gets under your skin, you start to hear and, and know and, and know, you know what, they're not doing as well as they were before at one time. And for some reason, that makes you feel kind of good now because you don't really like them. <laughs> but that's not what love does. It doesn't now here, speaks to us very clearly. It doesn't rejoice in evil. It rejoices in truth. What does it mean? It doesn't condemn the sin. It protects and covers that person who has fallen. And wants to restore. It rejoices in truth. It loves the cross with mercy, with grace, with truth. I think it's amazing as we read the Gospel of John and we 
Start to know in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was God. We learn in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among Him. And we start to know that the ministry of Jesus was, was com composed in two words, grace and truth. Isn't that amazing? The balance of who Jesus was was grace and truth. That is love. It rejoices in truth. It doesn't rejoice in evil. It doesn't rejoice in injustice. Verse 7, it bears not some things. <laughs> it bears all things. That person that is, or that thing, or, or us in our own heart, that thing that we're struggling with, it bears all things. What does that mean? It doesn't give up. You know why a lot of people get divorced this, this day and age? Because they give up. Because they start to think that, you know what, I'm thinking about myself, so this doesn't make me happy anymore. I'm going to go find a way to be happy. Because when I, 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 I said these vows, I said them because they were making me happy at that time. And it's not for the Lord. We start to give up on the love that we chose, which was the love of God. And it becomes a very selfish motive. But it never gives up. It bears through all things. This is what it's telling us in verse 7. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And maybe today you came hurting. Maybe you came, you came with some questions unanswered and you're asking God why. And God wants to remind you, love bears all things, my son and my daughter. Love now, what does it also do? It believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. You know what I love when it says in verse 7, bears all things? Love loves with no limits. With no limits. Have you put a limit in the way you love? Love is willing to love with no limits, unconditional, with no conditions. No conditions. You don't have to do this so that I can love you. You don't have to do this certain thing so that I can love you. It's unconditional love. It doesn't stop. It endures through every circumstance. Verse 7, it endures all things, every circumstance, every situation. You choose still to love. A lot of people tell me, well, you know what? Can I still love my husband or my wife after they've been unfaithful to me? Absolutely. In the love of Christ, guess what? The love of Christ allows you to be restored. The love of Christ allows you now to, guess what? To look over sins. There is opportunity. There is grace. There is mercy for that marriage still. 100%. After they have wronged me, after they turned their back on me, after they betrayed my trust. But what does it tell us that love believes all things? Have you stopped believing today in, in the love? See, believes all things... It says that love is not suspicious, it's not cautious, it's not skeptical when you offer love. It demonstrates kindness to others and it never loses faith. It never loses faith, it believes all things. If you made a commitment to be married, guess what? Believe all things, that's what love does. It never loses faith. Why doesn't it lose faith? Because it hopes all things. It doesn't give up. What does it do? It always has faith and it's always hopeful. And think about this. The Lord never lost hope when it came to you. So why should you lose hope when it comes to someone else? The Lord never said that person's a lost cause. You know what? It's done. There is no way. Love here bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. And love endures here all things. 
Love never gives in. It, it's enduring. It's not giving in. Love endures all things. It's, love is unconquered. He's saying, You're, that, that's not going to win over me. I love. I'm choosing to love. It's unconquered. Love leads you to Calvary for victory. That's exactly why it endures all things. Because it is victorious at the cross. You see, our love ought to never lose hope. Our love ought to never lose faith. Our love never to, ought to never stop believing and never to lose confidence have you lost confidence in those areas in those people that you ought to love Galatians 6 2 says bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ bear the burden bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ you see in the greatness of this agape love that we're talking about it always is bearing it's always believing it doesn't give up and it destroys Enemies that they had resentfully by turning them into their friends. I'm choosing to love that person even though they have wronged me. Verse 8, love never fails. What does it say here? It's faithful. It doesn't fail. It does not fail. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Love never fails. What does it mean that love has a work that never stops working. Now prophecies and tongues and knowledge and all of this will vanish away, telling us in verse 8, but love continues to be effective forever. Now it's going to tell us why and when prophecies and tongues and knowledge will become useless. You see, when we find ourselves in this perfect state in heaven, the tongues and the prophecies and the knowledge that they were all impressed by, all the gifts that they had, okay, so you're not going to use those gifts in heaven? It's all going to be about the love of God. It's going to be you being drawn to the love of God. It's saying prophecy it only serves you today. Knowledge only serves you now. Gifts only serve you now. In heaven, love is the only thing that's really going to last. It will last forever. Love never fails. You know, we learn, we learn when, we love the lo- uh, when we are able to experience the love of God, that He has never failed us either. He's always been faithful to you. Even when we, have been, when we have been unfaithful to Him, He has never failed us. That's amazing. You think about how many times we failed the Lord, but He never failed you. Alan Redpath says this, he says, If I have failed in love, I am not fitted for the presence of God. If I failed in love, I'm not fitted for the presence of God. For it simply means that I have never been near enough to the heart of Jesus to feel His love and to feel His compassion. When I failed in love, it means that I am not fitted for the presence of God because it simply means that I have not been close to the heart of Jesus to feel His love and to feel His compassion. When you're not a loving person, guess what it means? It means that you haven't spent time in the presence of Jesus. Because when you spend time in the presence of God, you get to feel the heartbeat, the love of Christ, His compassion, that you come out of the presence of God Wanting now to extend that to someone else. Love does not fail. Now from verse 9 and verse 13, as we read here quickly, it tells us this. The maturity of love. That was the character of love that doesn't give up, that does, is not resentful, that doesn't have a bad attitude, right? The behaviors of love. But look at in verse 9, it says, For now, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. 
Talking about the gifts. Knowledge is only partial. It's incomplete. You pro prophesy in part. It's incomplete. Now that prophecy, right? That, that me, maybe we utter. We only know it to a certain degree. These gifts that we have. But when that which is perfect has come. When that which is perfect has come. Knowledge and prophecy is partial. But love is perfect. I want you to know that. Your gift is partial. But love is perfect. Your resources are partial. But love is perfect. When knowledge here and prophecy and that which is in part here has gone away and that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away with. You see, we are living right now in such a partial view. Not that we don't have the full view of God until we see Him face to face. But prophecy, but knowledge, but the word of wisdom, but the gifts of the Spirit allows us to get to know Him better. They allow us to get to know Him better. But that, those are all just partial revelations of who God is. When we become perfect in the presence of God, guess what we have here? Now we know that love will last. Now we know that, it, that we ought not to be so impressed with these gifts because when the perfect, com perfect comes, the partial will be useless in heaven. You know what he's doing here? He's looking at the gifts in light of eternity. He's saying, what's going to matter in heaven? I think we get so caught up sometimes with what we're doing here on earth that we don't even know what's going to matter in heaven. What's really going to matter in heaven? Think about that. Does that change your perspective a little bit? What's really going to matter in heaven eternity? Is, is this really going to matter that much? Am I gonna, is my gift really going to matter that much that I have to try to exalt it? No, love, it's what really will last even in heaven. When I was a child, verse... Verse 10, I'm sorry, as we continue reading. But that which in perfect has come, that which in part will be done away with. Verse 10. And then it goes on. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. In the season that he was a child, you know, Paul has given us an illustration. He spoke just like a child during that time. That was appropriate for that time. But he's saying, but I, I understood as a child here. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, and I want you, this is where it gets really heavy. I put away childish things. Can we put away childish things? In order for you to love, you need to put away childish things. I think the church would be more effective when it comes to love if they put away childish things. What does a child think about? The child grows up and says here, I spoke, I thought, I behaved. You know what a child thinks? A child thinks about himself. But that's okay because he's a child. But when I grew up as a man, he's saying, verse 11, I put away childish things. I'm not looking back anymore. I'm looking forward to the love of God now. I'm not caught up with these things of being competitive with the gifts, right? It's been said before that the easiest way to lose a race is by looking back, right? You never win the race by living in the past. <laughs> put away the childish things now. And now, what does the childish things have anything to do? What does maturity have anything to do with childish things in love? Well, here he wants to tell us now that we can, that we can remember that we know that our giftness or the ability that we have as a gift, it's not a measure of maturity. It's not a, but display is, of love is a measure of maturity. What does that mean? That when you demonstrate your gifts, that doesn't me measure maturity. But when you demonstrate love, it measures maturity. You want to know a mature man or woman of God? It's not by their gifts. It's by the love. That's why this is the greatest love of all. 
This is how you measure spiritual maturity by the love that someone has. It's not the title that they have. It's not the message that they can proclaim. You demonstrate love now and you're demonstrating maturity as you are now extending the love that you can give to someone. In verse 12 it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. We're looking so dimly. We don't have a full clear image yet of heaven. We don't have a full clear image of the presence of God. 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 We see dimly. But then when it's perfect, when we are in heaven, we're going to see Him face to face. Isn't this amazing that He gives you an eternal perspective? What really matters? That one day you're going to stand before God face to face and you're going to have to give Him an answer to how much you really loved. (laughs) Now you're going to stand here face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just, I, I shall know just as I also am known. Verse 12, it's talking about here. The gifts are here to give us a dim perspective into the presence of God, right? That He is with us. But then when we see Him in heaven face to face, we're going to have open fellowship with God, right? And now we'll know Him just as I also am known. I'm going to have a clear vision of God. I'm going to see Him face to face, Christ, right? I love what... His mentality is, it's a mentality of, I'm looking forward, I'm looking ahead, I'm looking towards heaven. That's why I can choose the agape love of God, because my eyes are placed on heaven. The fastest way for you to start to lose the mind and the heart of love is to put your eyes on the things of this world, and the eyes on yourself, then the eyes on the things of heaven, and the eyes of God. When your eyes are on heaven, and your eyes on the things of God, guess what happens? You're going to easily be able to love more. Philippians 3.12, it says, Not that I've already attained, or I'm already being perfected. Not that I've already arrived. He has not arrived. He does not feel that. But I press on, that I may hold that which Christ has laid hold of me. He presses on. He's pursuing this. Now, verse 13, as we close. And it says this, And now abide, now live, now dwell, now hold on to. Now abide, now live, now dwell, Now hold on to, what is it going to tell us here? These three things. Faith, hope, and love. These three. You know what really matters? Faith, hope, and love. What really matters? Faith, hope, and love. Why? Because faith, hope, and love is perfect. Because faith, hope, and love is permanent. Because faith, hope, and love is lasting. What do you mean by faith, hope, and love? Why does he say it in that order? Because faith allows you to believe in Jesus. Faith allows you to believe in Jesus. Hope allows you to expect from Jesus heaven. And love allows you to become more like Jesus every single day. And it goes on and it says, but the greatest of these is love. Faith and hope will fulfill its purpose. But love will allow you to become more like Christ. What is the goal today? The goal is this unconditional agape sacrificial love. What does faith do? It allows you to believe and put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Hope will allow you now to see Him face to face one day. This is amazing that you can live in faith today and you can have hope for tomorrow, right? That's what he's giving us a promise here. 
I love it when we read this all the time. We abide in faith, hope, and love these three, but the greatest of these is love. And we sometimes don't realize what the message is in this verse. It means that I can have faith in God, and I can have hope of heaven that one day I will see Him face to face, and, and I will know Him just the way He knows me. I will have a clear vision of God, but the greatest of these is love because it allows me to become more like Jesus, that I can imitate Him. You see, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. And walk in love, walk in agape. Walk in agape love as Christ also has loved us and He gave Himself for us. When you love someone, you give yourself for them. You're willing to sacrifice. Offering as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. I love that love leaves us with an aroma. <laughs> Did you know that? The love leaves you with a sweet smelling aroma. Something so pleasing to be around. And that's why it says love as Christ has loved you. Because He gave Himself for you. And when you're, really, you're willing to give yourself for someone else, to love just like Jesus loved, you leave them with the aroma of Jesus you leave them with the fragrance of Christ can you choose to leave people today with the fragrance of Christ and choose to say Lord if, if maybe I have a hard heart or a hard time loving people that you would soften my heart today I love what the Lord promised the nation of Israel in the book of Ezekiel he says I'm going to take that stony heart of yours that, that heart of flesh that you have the stony heart, and I'm going to give you a different heart. I'm going to give you a heart transplant. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out that stony heart, that stubborn heart, that's what he's saying, that stubborn heart, that rebellious heart, that, that, that selfish heart of yours, he's saying, and give you a tender, responsive heart. Do you want a tender, responsive heart today? Tender, something that's so soft that you can cut right through it. Something that feels, something that's palpable, something that's willing to leave others with the fragrance of Christ because it's visited the cross at Calvary. The cross at Calvary was so inconvenient, but it was the ultimate demonstration of love. You want to love someone? Guess what you have to do? You have to carry your cross. Follow Him so that you can love Him. Why don't we choose today to start loving people but with our cross. If you're going to love someone, do it, but love them with a cross. Because that's the way the love of God is demonstrated, with the cross. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, God. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a responsive, a tender heart. That today, Lord, that you would change us from the inside out. That maybe you would do an open heart surgery in this church today. A heart transplant. That a new heart would open the door to a new spirit. Thank you, Lord, because you promised that you will give us a new heart and put a new spirit within us. 
that you will take out the stone, that heart of stone that we have and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that feels, a heart of emotion, a heart of compassion. And your word says that you will put your spirit within us and cause us to walk in, our statu- in your statues. And you will keep my judgments and do them obedience to his word with that new heart. Maybe the reason why we can't obey you, Lord, because we're still holding on to the old heart. Why we can't love the way because we're loving with the old heart. I pray, Lord, that today we would love with your heart and not with ours. <laughs> Give us your heart. Give us your compassion, Lord. That we would leave others with the fragrance of Christ. A sweet-smelling aroma. If you're here right now, if you know you need to get right with God before we take communion, just raise your hand. Because I want to pray for you. Amen. I see your hand. I see your hand. Praise God. We want to do this in the right way.